Greetings. My name is David. I'm a musician, a poet, a leader. You've probably heard of the time I killed Goliath with a slingshot. That triumph made me famous and eventually led to me becoming king. But that was many years ago. I'm an old man now, wistful and weary. Ruling a kingdom is grueling work, but after decades of war and uprisings and controversy, we finally enjoy peace in the kingdom. Sometimes I wonder how I got here. How does a simple shepherd from a lowly house rise to unify and lead a great nation? God was by my side in the face of our enemies. I know that, but I also owe a great debt to those who served me loyally in combat. By all logic, we never should have seen a single victory. In every battle, our adversaries were more skilled, better armed, with many more soldiers. But I had something they didn't. I had my 37 mighty men. They were uniquely fierce, ferocious in their loyalty, strong, formidable, relentless. Some of their exploits are so amazing, if I hadn't seen them with my own eyes, I would call it fiction. One such man was Etai. He was raised in the land of Gath, a subject of the Philistines, but he saw something in our cause and joined our ranks in a time of great danger. My own son has staged a coup against my reign. Refusing to fight him, my troops and I fled Jerusalem before his assassins could strike. During our escape, I saw Etai marching in my regiment. This remarkable foreigner had freely chosen to put himself in harm's way. I pulled him aside. Etai, what are you doing here? Go back to the city and find a safe haven for you and your family. This isn't your cause. These aren't your people. You have no obligation here. This man pulled a dagger from his belt and stood at attention, laying the blade over his heart. He clenched his jaw and declared, As God lives... In whatever place you, my king, shall be, whether in life or death, there also will be Etai, your faithful servant. He earned my everlasting trust that day, and helped us to survive the coup to fight again. Etai rose to the rank of general in my army, and marched at the head of our corps in many victories. Etai was a mighty man, brave, tireless, and loyal. One of you have heard the account of David before, have heard of his 37 mighty men. Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to study each one of them together. As we do that, I think it's going to challenge your view of the Bible. Because I think for many of us, we grew up with this idea. Read the Bible so you can learn how to be like the people in the Bible. And most of the time, everyone you read about in the Bible, almost without exception, is narrow-minded proud, arrogant, scoundrel, disloyal, some of the most narrow-minded people you're ever going to meet are in the Bible. From Abraham, to Moses' anger problem, to Noah's uh, inability to handle his alcohol, to David and what you're going to find out today about him. So the Bible is not about good people you need to be like. The Bible is about an incredibly loyal God who continues to be loyal to the most disloyal of people. And every once in a while... He gives a picture to these different disloyal people of just how incredibly faithful and kind and strong God is as a warrior. 
In fact, in theological terms, there's a concept called the communicable attributes of God versus the non-communicable attributes of God. What's that mean? Well, think about a communicable disease. A communicable disease is you get around it and you catch it, right? So you remember the old chicken pox parties? You know, somebody had chicken pox, get your kid over to the chicken pox, make sure they get it so they develop the immunity. The Bible is about a God that when you get around him, when you hang out with him, there are certain attributes of him you can catch. Not just like you try and conjure up a little bit more loyalty. Not you just try and be a little bit more compassionate. Or you work on your own forgiveness. No, 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 no. That's got a huge limit. Instead, you hang out with the God of the Bible and you catch his communicable attributes. And what was in him is now flowing out of you because you're in relationship with him. That's why the kind of loyalty we're going to talk about here that is emulated through Atiyah is an otherworldly kind of loyalty. It comes not just from somebody who happened to have good character, but somebody who tapped into a character that's out of this world. And I think we all long for that. We long for loyalty, that someone will be willing to be faithful even when the people around them are faithless. The Apostle Paul writes in this in the New Testament about the God of the Bible. He says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I can't tell you how many examples here at Horizon I've gotten to witness firsthand of people who found a God who was faithful when they had really messed up badly. I got two letters over the break from Christmas break just saying we went through the, the year of hell, hell in our marriage. There was unfaithfulness involved. There was brokenness involved. And it could only be described as a year from hell. And we've been coming to Horizon. We've been getting into Bible studies for the last three years. And it has brought incredible healing and change I never thought I could forgive her. I never thought I could forgive him. I didn't, just didn't have the resources to it. And as we've gotten to know God, God has transformed us. We found our own faithlessness in the marriage and how God would work with us. And then we were able to come and heal with one another. It's powerful when you get around that. It's powerful when you find a God who will do that. And it can transform your life and mine. I had a guy I met with several years ago. He came into my office. And he'd been in my office before, basically talking about why the way we do church was wrong. He was suddenly an expert in how to do church. Just fine. So he's telling me all the things we're doing wrong. And I'm like, you know, that's interesting. And tell me a little bit more about that. Well, a couple years later, he steps in my office and his total demeanor has changed. He said, can I talk for a second? I'm kind of bracing for another critique of what we're doing wrong. And he said, I just need to be honest. I've had a, a huge secret for many, many years. And that secret is I've been going to massage parlors and all kinds of things and I, no one knew about it and it's come open and now I'm shame and I don't live up to all the things I pretended to be. I'm just a mess. And I said to him what I've said to many people over the last couple of years I've had conversations like that with. I said, listen, I'm going to be your friend through this. I don't know what the circumstance is going to be, but I'm going to be your friend. Public scandal, private scandal, I'm going to be your friend. And I want to help you in the midst of this. He's like, well, I don't have any friends. Anybody who's heard about this, abandon me. I said, well, there's a God who's willing to befriend you in difficulty. And we're going to walk through this together. As I saw that marriage restored, as I saw that man heal and break, you know, years and generations of, of patterns, it was just amazing to see. When he discovered a God who was loyal to him when he was faithless, it's that grace that transformed him. So today I want to give you two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the disloyalty of Absalom and David. And see what happened and how they got where they were. Then we're going to look at the loyalty of Atiyah 
and Uriah and how God placed them in David's life to be a beacon to point them back to the God of loyalty in heaven. But to do that, I'm going to have to introduce you to an incredibly dysfunctional family. So the good news is, after I get done talking about David's family, you're going to feel like, wow, Christmas break wasn't that bad. Uh, It turns out that uh, our family may have some issues, but it's not like that. So let's begin by investigating the disloyalty that we see here in both David and Absalom. All right, so we're going to look at that first together. We're going to identify the three messages we're going to find here in David and Absalom's life that I think what led him to be disloyal may be the same messages that you've heard whispering in your ear as well. Now, first, let me give you all the characters. And there's a bunch of them. Stay with me. It's going to be like somewhere between uh, an incredible dysfunctional family tree and a Jerry Springer show, somewhere in there. So let me begin by introducing you to King David. Now, you probably know of King David as the man who killed Goliath. This is years later he's become king. The second character you need to realize is he has a son named Absalom. And Absalom loved his dad, wanted to grow up and be like his dad. So we're going to call him you know, Prince Absalom right there. But he's, something's going to happen in their relationship that he's going to want to overthrow his father. Now David has an incredibly wise counselor. And his counselor's name is Ahithophel. He is the wisest man in the nation. Think of him as the Merlin to King Arthur. Think of him as uh, Gandalf. He's a real character in history, and he advised David on how to lead his kingdom. And it was said to hear a word from Ahithophel was to hear from God himself. Now, Ahithophel has a grand grandson-in-law named Uriah. And Uriah is one of David's mighty men, the 37 men who fought for him, bled for him, died for him. But it gets a little more complicated. The wisest man in the nation, Ahithophel, has a brother named Nabal, who's pretty much the most foolish man in the kingdom. In fact, his name means fool. Not sure who named him, but not a great name. So Nabal the fool is a very, very cruel landowner that's going to come in contact with David. Ahithophel's granddaughter's name is Bathsheba. Maybe you remember her name. So Ahithophel's granddaughter Bathsheba is married to Uriah. One more little piece and we'll dive into the story. Nabal, the brother of Ahithophel, has a wife named Abigail. And now you have the incredible dysfunctional family, and we're going to see how this all plays into incredible amounts of backstabbing and stealing and killing that goes on in the kingdom of David, and how God is trying to work in the middle of all of the mess. And it's here we see three messages that David ends up believing that leads him to his disloyalty. Our first message is, I'm above the rules. I am above the rules. There's a certain path we start walking down when you think, yeah, the rules apply to other people, but uh, there's an exception to why I don't have to do that. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to hurt anybody. I can handle that. So a little background here. David is being hunted by King Saul, and as he's hunting, he, he comes feast day. And in feast day in Israel, you're supposed to provide for your guests or provide for your neighbors. So he, he hangs out at this guy named Nabal's house, and says, hey, could, I've been protecting your lambs for free. I've been protecting your shepherds for free. Could you just feed my 400 men just for one day? He's like, who are you? And I'm not going to provide anything for you. And David is furious. He turns to his 37 mighty men and says, grab your swords. We're going to go kill that man right now in cold blood. And as he's lost his temper and on his way to kill Nabal, Nabal's wife Abigail shows up. So this would be the niece of Ahithophel. 
And she says, Here, here's some food. Hey, sorry, my, my husband's name is Fool, and he lives up to that all the time. You know, here's food, here's food, food. Please don't kill us, please don't kill us. And one day you're going to be king, because he wasn't king yet. And when you're king, you do not want to know that you lost your temper one time and you killed somebody in cold blood. And David's like, whoa, you are so right. Wow, thank you for speaking truth into my life. Thank you for realigning me from being disloyal to my God and what I know to be true. And he's very impressed with her. Well, that same night, Nabal dies. And David's like, oh, she's free. Now, he's already got two or three wives at this point. And God has always said, one man, one woman. But David decides he's above the rules. You know what, I'm going to take a third or fourth wife. So he ends up marrying Abigail. Now, against the advice of Ahithophel, who said, one man, one woman, stay true to God, be loyal to one person. I know it's hard, but you know, work what God's told us to work. So already David says, I'm above the rules. I don't have to just have one wife. So he adds a third. And already there's a little distaste in the mouth of his greatest advisor, Ahithophel. Now we go to our second message. The second message we find is that David's not only above the rules, but he thinks he can have whatever he wants. One night he sends all his mighty men out to battle. And it says, in a time when men went out to war, David is sitting there kind of contemplating himself, kind of bored out of his mind back in the kingdom, because he's not at war. And so while he's doing that, he sees a woman bathing on the top of her house, keeps watching her bathing, and goes, hey, I kind of like her, calls for her. Her name is Bathsheba. He's going to find out pretty quickly that she is the wife of one of his best men, mighty men, who've battled for him and bled for him. He's also going to find out she's the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor. But he's the king. And he deserves it. And he's not getting the kind of respect or affection that he deserves from his other wives. He can have whatever he wants. So he sleeps with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. And now... He's got a decision. Do I come clean with my disloyalty? Do I admit what I've done? Do I find a God who's willing to hold me accountable to also forgive me and and work through this? Or do I hide what I've done? He decides to hide what he's done. So he sends for Uriah, brings Uriah home. Hey, Uriah, will you go just kind of hang out with your wife maybe for the evening? He's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. If my men are still out battling, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of my wife as long as my men are battling. So he writes a note to the commanding general of one of his best friends, of one of his mighty men, the grandson-in-law of his greatest advisor, and says, put him at the front of the battle, make sure he dies. And he kills one of his mighty men. Why? Because he started to believe he was above the rules. If you'd ask David, are you ever going to be a murderer? No, I'm not going to be a murderer. But see, this is what happens when you walk down the path of disloyalty. It starts with, hey, I can have whatever I want. I'm above the rules. Or maybe it's the message of Absalom. Because David so mismanages his family and is so disloyal to truth in his family that his son, a son who loved him and looked up to him, probably played little David and Goliath as a kid with little figurines and stick figures, decides to overthrow his father. And here's what happened. That's our third message, is i got to make people pay. One of the things that will make you be disloyal is when you think you need to make other people pay for what they've done. And your need for vengeance, your need for bitterness just drives you crazy. A little background here. David has all these wives now. And has all these sons and daughters from the different wives and their stepbrothers and stepsisters in here. One of them named Amnon rapes his stepsister. So David's son Amnon rapes his stepsister, David's daughter Tamar. And David doesn't have the courage to address it as the king, as the government, as the judicial system at the time. He just sort of ignores it. And Tamar's older brother 
Absalom cannot believe his dad will not protect his little girl. He can't believe his dad won't step in. He waits two years for dad to do something, and dad does nothing. So after two years, he says, I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to invite my stepbrother, Amnon, and he kills him at the party. Runs off for many years, hiding from David, hiding from David's generals. As they're hiding out for many years, finally he says, Dad, could we finally talk about this? Could we finally talk about this? And Dad's like, no, we're not going to talk. You can come back in the kingdom, but you can't see my face for several years. So Absalom lights the fire of the fields of David's general, Joab, burns the field down. Joab's like, we got to do something about this. All right, he can come. He can hang out. We're just not going to talk about it. Not going to talk about it. And don't talk about it. And Absalom, having not seen his dad step up and be courageous in all these difficult circumstances, begins to start a conspiracy that will ultimately overthrow his father. And as he gets older, he does. He overthrows, runs this, this um, mutiny against his dad. And what's amazing is that David's chief advisor sides with Absalom. Look what it says. Absalom sent for Ahithophel. Ahithophel's not going to be on your side. He's David's most trusted advisor. David's counselor and this conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Why is Ahithophel siding with Absalom? Because he has seen David's disloyalty to his granddaughter, to his niece, and just the way in which he has totally run amok in his life. He's like, you know what, I'm not necessarily for Absalom, but I'm no longer for David. So here's the question. David never would have thought this could have happened to him. And maybe you feel the same way. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. I'm an ethical person. But here's the question. Are you a loyal, ethical person, but you've really, if you're honest with yourself, started to listen to those messages? You've started down the path to disloyalty? You found yourself in some areas saying, you know, I'm kind of above the rules on that one. I'm not hurting anybody. It's not really a big deal. Hiding your secrets. Or maybe you're like Absalom. I've got to pay dad back for everything he's done. And your need for revenge, get that company back who didn't pay you enough, get that person back for what they did, has just begun to consume you. And you've begun to travel down the path of disloyalty. Because what happens is, the reason you end up being disloyal to something you cared about is because you're more loyal to something else. You stood before that altar and said, you know, till death do us part, I'm be loyal to you. But somewhere you said, I am loyal to you, but I'm not getting my needs met, and I'm more loyal to my needs being met than to you. And so I end up being so loyal to my needs being met, to pleasure, to affection, to whatever it is, I'm willing to be disloyal to this thing because I've fallen in love with that thing. I'm loyal to telling the truth unless it hurts your feelings because I'm more loyal to making people like me. And because I so want people to like me, I'm more loyal to getting people's approval than I am to telling the truth. And now I begin a whole web of lies that I can't quite untangle myself from. Financially, I'm committed to you know, you know, accountability and doing everything right, but, but the company's not really paying me what I'm worth, and, and I certainly bring a lot of value they're not honoring to the table. And though I'm loyal to being truthful about finances, you know, I also got to take care of myself because they're not going to take care of me. And you're so loyal to taking care of yourself, you start fudging and twisting and turning. You became loyal to something else. Some other thing became your God and your king. That's why if you want to know how loyal people, good people, become disloyal, it's they've turned a good thing into their God. It's almost always something good, people's approval, taking care of your own needs, being responsible, having people like you. Those are good things. You turn those into a God, a king in your life, and it's amazing the paths they will take you down. My friend Jeff was telling the story about an eighth grade girl 
just as she grew up through college, she was just consumed with anxiety. And she was tracking it down in a counseling session with him, and she said, I realized that when my mom and dad, when I was in eighth grade, my mom was going back for her, for her doctorate. And my dad bragged to everybody, oh, my wife's going back for a doctorate, she's getting a 4.0, so proud, so proud, so proud. And they got to the time of the graduation, she went up, and her 4.0 kind of fell because she's trying to balance business and work and family, and so she had like a 3.5. And I just saw my dad was devastated that when she went to walk, she didn't have the gold cords. And I realized my mom fell into depression. And my dad just had this kind of, I'm proud of her, but you could just feel the change. And in eighth grade, I decided I better get straight A's all the time because that's how you get approval. That's how you get importance. That's how things happen. And I found myself just driven to all kinds of extremes, all kind of unhealthy workaholism all through my life. And I trace it back to, it was at that moment I saw the devastation of my mom and dad over something as silly as a gold cord. And it created an anxiety in me that I was so loyal to that I wasn't going to be loyal to actually health and balance and other things. Sometimes it's people approval. See, Martin won the award several years ago, and it was at this massive auditorium. And because they had all the tables together, because everyone wanted to be there, because Steve Martin was going to be there, well, Steve Martin was seated at the back. And so they announced, the winner of the award this year is Steve Martin! And so Steve's in the back, he's making his way up. Everybody's clapping. Excuse me. I'm sorry, excuse me. Excuse me. And this is a big room. And oh, he makes his way up. And it's like people are clapping for like three or four minutes. And finally, he kind of weaves his way through. He gets up to the stage. And finally, he puts people out of their misery. And he says, that's kind of the goal of life, isn't it? To get here before the plods fades. He says, that's kind of the upside and downside of fame and success. You want everybody's approval, but you got to get there before the applause fades. When you live for applause, oh my goodness, the things you'll talk yourself into, the compromises you'll make because it makes you famous, it makes you important, gets you awards, and gets people clapping. But the secret is, can you get there before the applause goes out? And what compromises do you make along the way? Have you turned a good thing into a God thing? And has that got you on a path that you're starting to say things, think things, lean into things that you never thought you'd do before? The good news is there is a God who wants to work with you and draw near to you. And you have not faded too far away from a God. A God who wants to be faithful to you when you've been faithless. Who wants to address these messages you begin to tell yourself that are taking you to a place you do not want to go. It's amazing when you mix up who God is and switch it with something else, how screwed up you can end up being. I remember my daughter was moving out of her apartment. I guess this was a year and a half ago. And so I said, hey, I'll help you kind of clean out the apartment. It's right around the corner here. So I show up the house. I pull the car in. We're going to take all the trash out of the... She's on the third story. So I walk up the stairs and walk up the stairs, get the third story. I put the key in, walk into her house. And I'm like, man, she really cleaned up a lot of this stuff in advance. I thought I would need to help her more. I'm walking. I'm like, man, she got new furniture. That's weird. Well, I guess we're moving into a house. We want that. Walking next to us. What's that? I don't remember that being there. And, and then I walked a little bit further, and again, I, I used her key to get in the door, and, and I walked to another room, and I'm like, oh, it looks like the bed comforter's different. And suddenly I realized, I'm an intruder <laughs> in somebody else's home. And somehow this key fit her door and fit this door, and I'm like, 
I'm going to get shot. And I'm like backing out of this house. Like, oh my God, the anxiety, all this thing. Because I'm literally the pastor intruder. I can just see the news. Chad Holvin intrudes. He steals. You know, he gets shot. What are you doing in that house? You know, all these stories go out all because I was trying to help my daughter out. But that's what happens when you mix up who God is. You're in the wrong house, in the wrong room, doing the wrong things. Because you're loyal to one thing. When the God is the one king in your life, you get around him, you catch his loyalty, and he aligns you to things that are true. So that's how David got into his mess. Now I want you to see how God put very specific people in his life to be an example of the kind of faithfulness and forgiveness David needed. And that you and I can long for, long for the loyalty that we see in Atiah and Uriah. Because in the middle of David, just doing whatever he wants, going off track, God specifically puts people who are close to to God, who are close to him, who are living the incredible life of faithfulness to draw him back, to say there's a new way, there's a different way. The first thing is David's talking to just his general servants. And everybody knows David's family is a bit of a mess, but look at the way in which they respond to him. The, The servants say, The king's servant said to the king, We are your servants. We're ready to do what the Lord the king commands. You tell us what to do, we'll do it. That was the response of his people. They loved David. And David heard that. What he should have done is seen this as God's grace to him. My goodness, is that my attitude toward my king? My people say, we're your servants. We're here to serve you. And whatever you ask, we will do. Do I say that to God? God, I'm your servant. And whatever you ask me to do, I'm so indebted to your forgiveness, your grace, your power. I'll do whatever you ask. Or have I made rules that I can do whatever I want? God puts these people around him to show him there's a new way and you're not living that way. Let's go back to Uriah for a second. Because remember, he's just slept with Bathsheba, Fithophel's granddaughter. And he calls Uriah in and he says, Hey, Uriah, you should go enjoy your wife. And look at this speech from Uriah. It is amazing. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. Hey, a little housewarming gift. But Uriah did not even go in. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, Hey, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David's like, Trying to hide what I did, trying to manipulate what I did, trying to manage what I've done is not going to work. I have one of my mighty men who's so faithful to me, he won't even enjoy his own wife given the opportunity to be away from battle because he wants to be an example of his God. And again, don't think just like, go be like Uriah. I want to tell you why Uriah is like Uriah. Uriah says, I want to be as faithful to other people as God has been to me. You're going to see this in just a second. His connection to God is that God has been so faithful to me, I want to do unto others as God has done unto me. And even though David has got this masterful strategy to manipulate and and maneuver everything, he calls Uriah again here, continues the conversation, and look what Uriah says and what motivates him. Uriah, he says to David, Hey, didn't you come from a long journey? Haven't you been to battle? Why, Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark... And Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. So there was a, a, a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It had two angels on top, two cherubim. And this box was the sign of God's presence. And Uriah says, as long as God's box 
where God presents himself can't go to its home because we're still battling some enemies who've stolen some things. As long as God doesn't have a home, as long as my men are out in battle, my servants of the Lord are encamped in fields, the men I, I, I champion, I'm not going to take advantages of things that my men don't have, and I'm certainly not going to take advantage of things that God doesn't have. And it's his connection to God and God's faithfulness to him and God's presence that motivates him to be the kind of leader, the kind of husband, the kind of servant that says, I'm not going to do it. Shall I then, in light of what God's done for me and what my men are doing for me, go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live, as your soul lives? I'm not going to do such a thing. I'm thinking, I probably would. (laughs) Good for you, Uriah, but... I'm not sure I would have made that decision. But Uriah is so overwhelmed by God's faithfulness to him and that what God's done in his life and what he has fought for for years, that that's what motivates him to make these decisions. So I tell you, if you're on the path, you could try harder, but you've tried that. That didn't work. You can make promises to yourself. That's probably not going to work. You need to get close to the God of the box. And discover a God who is faithful when we are faithless. A God who has got power and courage and strength and serves you so well. You want to serve the people around you so well. This is how you become loyal. And we're going to get to a tie-in next. The kind of loyalty, the kind of otherworldly loyalty we're talking about only comes from getting to know the God who's an otherworldly kind of loyal. Now David and Absalom's story picks up. Because Absalom has now come into the kingdom with a, this huge group of people, including Ephithophel. They're about to overthrow the entire kingdom. And David's like, I'm not going to kill my own son. We're out of here. So he and his men take off at the back door. And as they're taking off at the back door, David has just recruited a new mighty man. He's been with them relatively a short period of time. His name is Ataya. As they're heading out the door, David turns to Ataya and says, listen, you're from Gath, the Philistines. You've just been recruited recently. I'm going to be on the run now for the next, who knows, 10, 20 years. You don't deserve this. Please don't go with me. And there was a a certain brook in the Kidron Valley. And across that brook was to step out of the royal palace and to move away. Basically saying, you know, I've given up the kingdom. And he turns to Ataya, his mighty man, and says, listen, don't cross the brook with me. It's going to be a tough life of discomfort. You stay there and serve my son, the new king. And here's how he says it. Next slide. The king said to Atiah the Gittite, why are you going with us? Listen, just remain and return with the king. And when he says the king here, he's talking about the new king, his son Absalom. For you're a foreigner. You're not even from my country. You grew up in Gath. You're not even Israelite. And also you're an exile from your own place. I took you in when you got kicked out of Gath. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I do not know where we're even going, how long we're going to be there? No, no, no. Return, return, return. Go back to your brethren if you need to. Uh, mercy and truth be with you. But you don't need to go with me. Because the minute we cross this valley, the minute we cross this brook, it's, it's no coming back. And Atiyah has so seen something in David, the moments he did it right, that he has learned about a God who lives in Israel that is unlike any God he's ever heard of before, a God who's faithful when his people are faithless, that Atiyah turns to David, given the chance to get out, given the chance to return, and here's what he says. But Atiyah answered the king and said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, you're the real king. Neither death nor life, 
even there your servant will be. I'm not going back to Gath. I'm not going to go with a new king. I don't care if it's discomfort. I don't care if it's difficult. I don't care how long it's going to take. I want to be with you. That's the kind of loyalty I have towards you. And Atai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And the country wept with a loud voice. The king is left. And all the people crossed over. And the king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And again, I think Ittaiah was a gift from God to say, Ittaiah got to know the God of Israel. And it so changed him. He is showing a loyalty and a faithfulness that, that you don't deserve, David that you don't earn, David, but it's a living example of my faithfulness to you. Have you ever been stabbed in the back or lied to by a friend? And you saw them just heading toward destruction? And along the way, you might be the example of you loving, being committed to truth, speaking accountability. God may use you as the example of a tie in that person's life. Or maybe you're on the path right now to making some fudges and making some compromises. And maybe you need to look around and say, has God put some people in your life that are living a different way? They don't think they're above the rules. They do have some accountability in their life. And God is trying to say, you better watch out because you're heading down a dangerous path. I'm willing to help, but I'm also not going to stop you from the consequences of where you're going. A colleague, Tim, told the story of a woman started coming to his church. And she kept coming in the back door and then leaving real quickly before service. So he came to talk to her one time. He caught her right before she was leaving one day and said, Hey, can I ask you something? I've noticed you've been here a few times. Tell me your story. She said, Well, uh, you know, I'm in broadcasting and a big company up in New York City that you probably know. And her boss was a very well-known person with a lot of clout in the industry. She said, You know, about a year ago, I made a terrible mistake. It was like a career-ending kind of mistake. And I walked into my boss's office. I knew I was going to get fired. I knew this was the end. And he said, well, you know, I talked to the, uh, my, the boss's boss's boss kind of thing. And I, I let him know that, you know, I didn't train you well enough. I didn't prepare you for the situation. And so I just want to let you know that um, you still got a job. And, you know, here's kind of new vision, new marching orders. And her jaw dropped. She said, I've had a lot of bosses in my day. <laughs> and I've had a lot of bosses who took a lot of credit for things I did. But I've never had a boss take the blame for what I've done. He's like, no, it's not a big deal. You know, it's just great to have you on the team. Let's just keep moving forward. He said, no, 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 no. Why would you do that? It's like, again, it's not a big deal. Let's just move forward. She's like, no, I got to know. I I cannot go on if I don't know why it is that you did this for me. He says, all right, you've made me say it. I'm only going to say it once, but you've made me say this. I'm a Christian. And... I serve a God who took the blame for me, and that's why I'm doing it for you. Now, can we drop it? <laughs> like, almost reluctant. <laughs> it's going to be a PR, HR, sorry, HR nightmare. But he's like, because I serve a God who took the blame for me, he was faithful when I was faithless, it's playing out in how I treat other people. And she said, after that account a year ago, I started coming to church. I don't believe what you believe. I don't even know if I like the stuff you're saying. But I want to know the kind of God who would have a boss do what he did for me. Here's my question for you. Are you willing to cross the brook for other people? The brook of Kidron. You might have somebody in your life who's not behaving the way they need to. It's a rebellious son, postpartum wife, midlife crisis husband. 
And are you willing to cross over the Kidron to be loyal to them, to be faithful during the difficult winter times in your marriage, to stick at it, to be faithful, to to challenge yourself, to say, God, I'm not doing it because I deserve it. I'm not doing it because I get all my needs met. I'm doing it right now because you did it for me. See, in the day of the Kidron Valley, it was kind of the the area that went around Jerusalem. Apparently, there was a brook at the time. Here's a picture of what it might have looked like. And it wasn't like it was a big deal to cross that brook. It was a symbol of stepping into discomfort. Real loyalty takes a cost. See, that executive at that New York City branch, it took a cost to his reputation to protect hers. It's a cost. It'll always be a cost for you to be loyal. It'll always be a cost for you to sacrifice, a cost for you to serve. In fact, if you go to that location today, you'll see a giant tomb there to Absalom. Absalom is long gone. He's dead. That's his giant tomb. He died paying his father back. He ends up getting tangling up. His hair gets tangled up in a tree as he's chasing down his dad. And he ends up being killed by that same general that he burned the fields down on. Whether you have a rebellious son like Absalom, whether you're in rebellion or working with some of those messages yourself, Will you be the voice of truth in someone's life? Will you be the voice of forgiveness in someone's life? Will you walk with people during the challenges they have? Cross the Jordan. Cross the Kidron Valley for the people who might be hurting in your life. Be faithful in the midst of difficulty. As you begin this journey, each week we're going to look at different uh, mighty men. Today was Atiyah and Uriah. And I want to challenge you to take the, the, the lion-hearted challenge. Each week, at the bottom of your notes in your program, I'm going to put just a few things you can do if you want to begin to pursue this in your own life, this otherworldly kind of loyalty. Number one, maybe you want to memorize that verse I put on the screen. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Two, ask yourself every day this question. David didn't. Are you drawing closer to a... F- or farther from the source of loyalty? Are you getting closer to God these days or farther from Him? Because if you're not getting closer to Him, you're going to end up on paths you don't like. And try reading a paragraph, just one paragraph from the Bible a day. Just pick a book of the Bible, the book of John. Pick the book of First or Second Samuel that we've been reading through right here. And just say, what, what can I get to know about this God? And then lastly, try a confessional prayer. Something like, God, I agree with you that I've made myself above the rules in this area of my life. Please forgive me. Please lead me into this new year. Help me to do whatever you, my real king and God, I want to make you the king of my life. And you're going to find that there's a God, when you ask him for help, he will speak to your soul. And he will give you the compassion, the courage, the strength, and the loyalty you need to keep on keeping on when you run out of your own power. In fact, let me pray that prayer right now. And maybe you want to use this in your, in your own uh, time before you head to work or before you go to bed at night. But let's pray together this prayer. Father, we agree with you that we have made ourselves above the rules in so many areas. Please forgive us. Lead us. Help us to do whatever the king desires by making you king of our life today. Amen.